Join the Packet Pushers on December 13th for a live stream event on the future of DPUs and infrastructure sponsored by Dell Technologies. We'll talk about how DPUs accelerate workloads, what network engineers need to know about DPUs, operational and business benefits, and more. Sign up now for this free live stream at packetpushers.net slash livestream. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and we got part one of a two-part series on deploying Kubernetes for you. Our guest today is Michael Levan. He's a leader in Kubernetes and containerization. You can find out all about him on uh, michaellevan.net. And uh, in this conversation, Ned, we, we go... We had a long conversation about the building of clusters, and it felt like we just scratched the surface. Oh, absolutely. And and there's probably there's a reason that there's a whole other podcast on the Packet Pushers Network dedicated to Kubernetes is because this is a broad and wide topic. But we tried to do just a general overview of what goes into building a cluster, both on premises and in the cloud, because they are slightly different. They are slightly different. And enjoy the wisdom of Michael Levon as he explains it to you. Michael Levon, welcome to the show. And uh, I think this might be your first time on Day 2 Cloud. So would you tell the nice people listening who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Yeah. So I do everything in the Kubernetes and containerization space right now. Um, you know, and with that space, you get into Terraform and CICD and all the different clouds and all that good stuff. So anything from consulting to content creation, podcasting, writing books, speaking uh, on, at conferences and all that fun stuff and, uh, you know, everything in between. And podcasting. Yeah, I know one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was so that you could tell people about your new podcast that's on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, Kubernetes Unpacked. So tell us about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, I try to do with my content in general to differentiate it is I, I want it to be something that people can use in production. You know, instead of having a whiteboard with your architecture diagram, I want you to be able to, you know, slap one of my blog posts up there and be like, oh yeah, this is what we need to do. Um, very similar for the podcast. So People that come on the podcast are engineers, are CTOs, VPs, everybody in between, essentially people that are actually utilizing Kubernetes in production, whether it's in the cloud, on-prem, the different tools that you're using. So the whole podcast, the idea of it is actually taking you know one of the episodes and figuring out a, a problem that you have in production, figuring out something that you're trying to implement in production. All right. Lots and lots and lots of uh, stuff going on there that you are sharing with Kubernetes Unpacked. And I, and they're not long episodes. They're not super long. You've been keeping them to roughly half an hour or so, I've noticed. Right. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the, the, the whole idea is like, you know, I don't want it to be a super long episode because at the end of the day, there's always going to be bite-sized problems that we're all trying to figure out. You know, like if we're working on something in production, chances are the thing that we're trying to figure out is a five-minute problem, but it takes us... 20 hours to figure it out because that's just the way that it goes in engineering. Uh, so yeah, so that's, that, that's kind of the goal there. The goal is to, you know, save you the 20 hours and pop it into 30 minutes for you. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been enjoying that show a lot. It's one of my must listens in my, uh, my podcast theater, which is overcast, overcast or percolated up new show. It's like Michael with another one. And I'm usually like two behind because you keep, you keep cranking them out, man. Well, this show and, uh, and actually the part two that'll be coming up next week is about deploying Kubernetes. And this is aimed at infrastructure engineers. Those of you that are listening that you, you tend to be builders, you, you put systems together, platforms that applications run on top of this, this episode's for you focused around Kubernetes. And we're going to talk in this episode about building clusters. 
So, Michael, I think we need to start at the beginning here for people that maybe don't know Kubernetes all that well. Would you define a Kubernetes cluster? Yeah. So I think there's kind of two different, uh, sorry, I think there's kind of two definitions in terms of what Kubernetes is. So from a holistic perspective, it's simply an orchestrator that takes a container and schedules it for you, puts it in a certain location, then your containerized application runs. Um, you know, Kubernetes in itself from a clustering standpoint is you primarily have uh, two components. You have the control plane, which is where your API runs, uh, which is where, you know, uh, different types of containers can run depending on uh, if you're running on-prem or if you're running in the cloud. You have your proxies and your schedulers and on in etcd and all of that good stuff which is your database and then you have the worker nodes which is where the actual containerized applications run so for example if you have a pod running it's running on a worker node it's not running on the control plane okay so those worker nodes are members of the cluster and would those worker nodes also be running portions of that control plane or do you typically reserve special nodes for the control plane components yeah, so the the worker nodes never run the control plane components, but at the same time, the control plane components can be split up. So to <laughs> try to make this as least confusing as possible, when you're running, you know, in the cloud or something like that, for example, you don't manage the control plane. So like EKS, AKS, et cetera, you're not managing the control plane that's managed by the cloud for you. But let's say you're running on-prem, you can have, an etcd pod, it's actually running as a pod on your control plane, or you can have an entirely separate server that's running etcd. So there is, there, there's a, a bunch of different ways that like you can even have your API server split up, you know, you can have etcd split up. So you can have all these components split up, or you can put them in one location on the control plane. So it, it kind of depends on the architecture mm -hmm. and, and ultimately how large the cluster is. Well, for people that just got overwhelmed by thinking about all the different architecture decisions that they might need to make, let's go to, let's strip it down to the simplest. What would a minimum viable cluster look like? So well, I, they, the two answers are there, there would be, you know, either uh, from a cloud perspective or from an on-prem perspective. So in the cloud, luckily, like there's really nothing you have to do from a control plane perspective. It's all abstracted away from you. It's all managed by the managed service that you're using whether it's on GCP, Azure, AWS, wherever. So that's, you know, that's pretty much what it is. They handle it for you. From an on-prem perspective, to get up and running, the easiest way, in my opinion, is to use something like KubeADM, which is a bootstrapper. Um, a lot of like AKS, EKS, they use KubeADM uh, in, the, in the background to, you know, bootstrap Kubernetes clusters and stuff like that. But when you do that, what happens is all of the control plane components all go on the control plane. So etcd is there, the scheduler is there, the mm -hmm. API server is there. It's all under one control plane. And then of course you can have, you know, multiple servers. Um and, and you know to to even take a step back for a second like from an infrastructure perspective, this is the type of architecture that we've seen in the field for years. You know, you have multiple servers, the servers are running pieces of, or an application rather right components and you scale those servers out maybe you need two, three, four, et cetera. So from an infrastructure architecture perspective, we've kind of always been doing this. We're just now calling it Kubernetes and etcd and the API server. <laughs> yeah. So if, if I'm at home and uh, I want to lab up a minimum viable Kubernetes. Um, so something that would look a little more like production and not like, cause I know there's tools like Minikube and all that, and we, we can talk about those later, but from, if I want to emulate something more like I'd see in production, what would I be in for? Like, uh, 
three or four virtual machines with control plane and worker node functions split across them, something like that? Yeah. So you always want to have at least two control planes. And then from a best practices standpoint, you want to have at least three worker nodes. So if you're trying to run that at home, figure you got five VMs. Okay. But you know, if you want to just get it up and running to figure out how it works, because here's the thing, you could have one control plane, one worker node and add more control planes and more worker nodes later. So if you don't have the capacity on your server or whatever the case may be, that's perfectly fine. You can get it up and running on two VMs, literally, like I have a laptop to the left of me that I'm running Hyper-V on. It's a Windows 11 box or Windows 10. And I have, you know, a bunch of control planes there. I have a bunch of worker nodes there that I'm running in. That it literally emulates production. I mean, obviously you're not mm -hmm. running a laptop in production, but it's the same path. Like there, it's not, it wouldn't be a different path, whether I'm running it on my laptop or I'm running it in production. It would just be a matter of number one, how you're deploying it. And number two, how many control planes and worker nodes you have. But yeah, from a best practices perspective, you always want to have at least two control planes just from a failover perspective, and then at least three worker nodes. It sounds like if I can even run it on a, on a laptop, I don't need to have tons of CPU and RAM to pull this off. Yeah, I think right now I'm running, uh, you need a minimum of two gigs of memory. And from a, a virtual CPU perspective, I think I'm giving them like two each to, to, uh, for the VMs. Yeah. So, you know, a, a decent laptop, but not overly taxing. Um, and if you have a desktop or you have a little mini lab in your uh, in your home, <laughs> you yeah. can probably easily run it on that as well and get that sort of production-like experience. Yeah. What, about, what about a typical cluster that's actually deployed by an organization? Uh, you'd mentioned some of the guidance of being the two control plane servers and, you know, three worker nodes. Is that something that you would scale larger if you were deploying a cluster to be used in production by an organization? Funny enough, it's going to depend on your like what applications you're deploying and how many. So if you have, for example, three pods that you need to deploy, maybe you have, you know, a front end, back end, middleware, something like that, that you're splitting up. Having two to three worker nodes and two control planes in production is perfectly fine. But then if you get into, for example, you know, Mercedes-Benz, their tech team, they're running over a thousand Kubernetes clusters on OpenStack. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, they obviously have multiple worker nodes and multiple control planes. So it's going to definitely depend on what you're deploying and the size. You know, if you got 100 to 200 pods that you got to deploy, yeah, you're probably going to want a significant amount of worker nodes. But if you're just like getting to the point where your organization is now moving to containerization and Kubernetes, chances are you're probably going to only have a few. Right. So if you're just dipping your toe in the water, you can start on the smaller side and you can both scale up the individual nodes, whether it's control plane or worker, or you can scale out as needed. But it's probably yeah. most important to get the basics, the fundamentals right of how it's set up, rather than focusing too much on number of servers and CPUs and RAM. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, again, if you're if you're doing something on prem, you can add more control planes, more worker nodes whenever you want, as long as you have the VMs available. From a cloud perspective, you literally just click the button that says auto scale and it just does it for you, and you don't even have to do anything. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 a pretty. Uh, simple path, I would say, in terms of scaling out, the not so simple piece is actually getting it up and running production ready. And, you know, from a learning perspective of actually figuring out how it all works. Hmm. Well, do you think I should roll my own on-prem or should I use uh, some kind of a cloud managed service for Kubernetes, Michael? 
<laughs> there's the uh, $2 million question, depending on how large your data center is. So it, I think that in today's world, usually I think running something in the cloud is probably going to be the path to go. However, it's always going to depend on the circumstance. So for example, I was speaking to a colleague uh, a couple of days ago. He works in the defense space. And because of that, there are certain areas of the world or of the US maybe world, not sure, that he needs to run on-prem Kubernetes clusters because it's just a regulatory thing. You know, it's just a compliance and security thing because it's the government sector. There's just certain areas that he needs to run them on-prem. And then there, and then he has other uh, clusters that are running in the cloud. So it's go, it's definitely going to depend on your environment overall. But if you're, you know, an organization that needs to meet maybe simple regulatory terms, uh, simple compliance, maybe you don't have a specific need to run it on-prem, you know, a lot of the times organizations are going to the cloud. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we, we've heard stories of cloud repatriation where, you know, maybe started in the cloud and then realized from an economic standpoint, maybe this is a steady state sort of thing that we can just host ourselves and that ends up being cheaper. Um, it certainly seems like that's a, if you're a startup, you start in the cloud or if you're just dipping a toe, cloud's easier. But then as you scale up, you may hit that that fulcrum point where it makes sense to bring it on-prem, but then you need all the engineering talent to successfully manage the control plane and the underlying components that stack stack together to build it. Exactly. Yeah. Like again, if you look at like Mercedes, for example, they're running over a thousand clusters, like they probably can't run it in the cloud because of quotas, because of limits that they may reach in, in regions and, and, you know, different VPCs and whatever the case may be in the cloud. Cause you always have a X amount of services that you can run in, in each region or whatever the case may be. Maybe they need to run it in certain places because of that. So it's like, yeah, it's always definitely going to depend on where you're actually, or not where, but what you're actually running and why you're actually running it. Uh, but yeah, like you said, I mean, even from a startup perspective, like no startup, you know, with five people uh, wants to go like deploy in a data center. <laughs> they want to just log into AWS or Azure and, you know, click a couple buttons or run some Terraform code and that's it. Right. And arguably, in some cases, they don't even need Kubernetes at that stage. They yep. could they could work with just deploying the containers through one of the other 150 different ways you can deploy containers in the cloud. I, I, I've lost count. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep. I actually have a client right now that I'm working with. Uh, they're a small company. It's actually funny enough. Uh, I worked for the CEO years ago and he started a new company and now I'm, I'm consulting for his new company. And we were kind of having the discussion around, you know, is the company ready for Kubernetes or not? They want to containerize everything, of course, but, but are they ready? And ultimately what it ended up coming down to was we went with ECS. So Elastic Container Service in AWS, which is it literally does everything that Kubernetes does. It schedules pods out or containers out. It does all of the, you know, the self-healing and all of that fun stuff. It's just a, I would, I would call it like Kubernetes light almost where you don't have to worry about all of the, like, you know, the, the service meshes, you don't have to worry about all the CNIs. You don't have to worry about all the different ingress controllers and all of that. Uh, it's just running, you know, as a service in AWS. And that's sometimes a, a better path for startups that don't want to dive into the whole Kubernetes arena because it's complicated. Yeah. You mentioned the Mercedes Benz thing a, a few times and, you know, thousands of clusters. I, I've seen the case study as well. I'm curious, 
do they treat those clusters as, you know, permanent, untouchable artifacts? Or are they treating the clusters kind of like you would typically treat a pod, which is ephemeral and, you know, without state? So are they just like spinning up clusters and then getting rid of them as quickly as they want? Or are these, do they have 5,000 steady state clusters? Yeah. So it didn't exactly say in the article and I've, I've Googled around and stuff as well to try to get a little bit more information. And it doesn't, it doesn't say specifically, but what I can imagine is this in Kubernetes or just in in general, usually have single tenancy and multi-tenancy. Now, single tenancy, multi-tenancy, it could be one user or one application, or it could be, you know, a group of users or a team uh, or, you know, multiple applications. So what I imagine a a nice chunk of that, those thousand Kubernetes clusters are, hey, we have five people on the dev team. Uh, They all need a Kubernetes cluster to be able to test something. We're going to run our automation. I believe they're using cluster API for for all of the deployments and stuff. And, you know, boom, now you got five new clusters. And then once they're done, they spin them down. So I imagine, I'm assuming, but I imagine a lot of that is happening from a single tenancy perspective. Okay. So you're, I guess the guidance to whether or not I need more than one cluster comes down to isolating workloads to specific teams. Is that typically what you're seeing? It could be, it could definitely be one of the pieces. I see that a lot where, you know, let's say you have uh, five dev teams, you know, maybe some front end, some back end, middleware, et cetera. They may all have their own Kubernetes clusters or each person on the team may have a Kubernetes cluster from a single tenancy perspective. You don't see that a lot in smaller organizations, but you will see it a lot in larger organizations because, you know, if you're just testing new code, if you're uh, testing a new container image, if you're testing a new implementation, they're going to want to segregate that as much as possible versus having one dev cluster where everybody's just shooting container images out and, you know, Mm -hmm. everything's, you know, not working the way that people are expecting. And from a, from a production perspective, yeah, you're going to see multiple clusters, but uh, and I don't know how accurate this is, but I, I could imagine just from what I'm seeing that it's pretty accurate. Only 10% of organizations are using 50 or more Kubernetes clusters. Hmm. So a lot of organizations are like using between five and 10, if that. So, but, okay. So we're, this feels like it's a resource contention concern. If you want to make sure that you know the dev team isn't eating resources from the QA team or something, you build their own cluster for them. Build, and when we say build their own cluster, to me, that means it's bare metal. That's now got um, all the Kubernetes components built on top of it. That CPU, that RAM is dedicated to that cluster. And so I don't, I don't have to worry about resource contention in that scenario, right? Right. Yep. It's, it's that. And then it's a lot of segregating workloads. Yeah. So, you know, if you got, you know, if you're trying to, let's say you got version 1.2 of a a pod that's running a backend application, you want to be able to test, uh, you know, version 1.3 of your new front end application with version 1.2 of the backend, you don't want another developer updating version 1.2 to 1.3 or 1.4, because you want to be able to test certain versions with, you know, other pieces of the application. Um, Hence the whole, you know, idea of microservices of just, you know, having the ability to not have dependencies on different pieces of the application. So a lot of that as well, it's a lot of segregation from that perspective. 
the more reading I'm doing about microservices, I can say that ninety uh, percent of companies that deploy microservices a hundred percent regret having done so. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's definitely a little bit tricky, and I also think that it's microservices are a funny thing because you know the whole idea is to not have dependencies, but like at the end of the day, you always have a dependency on something. Like there's always a dependency on something, so it's it, it's. It's far-fetched in a sense, but I think that with microservices, you can get, you know, 80% of the way there of not having dependencies on certain things. But again, you're always, you're always going to have some dependency somewhere. Yeah, it's that eternal quest to avoid lock-in that we always talk about, whether it's vendor lock, lock-in or platform lock-in. But at some point, you have to make a choice. And once you've made a choice, you've created some kind of dependency. And we just have to accept that, you know, it's a, it's a cost-benefit analysis and sometimes the pros outweigh the cons to to lock yourself in or couple yourself to something uh i want to pick apart something that you mentioned a, a few moments ago in terms of clusters versus what i what i thought of when i thought of seg segregating different workloads is namespaces right i can use namespaces to separate out different applications or different teams or whatever but i think the point that you were making is that there's some com common components on the cluster that are going to be managed and maintained. And maybe not everyone who's using that cluster is ready for that upgrade or that change to the shared components. Is that usually why you would break it out to other clusters instead of having everything housed on a single massive cluster? Yeah, I would say so. But the other thing about from a namespace segregation perspective is it's, how can I put it? It's not 100%. So like, for example, let's say you have five clients and you want to be able to segregate them you wouldn't put them in their own namespace because there's always ways to have uh, pods talk to other pods in different namespaces. And then also from that perspective, you would have to set up, you know, this user can only talk to this namespace or this team can only talk to this namespace. And then you get into like very deep from an RBAC perspective, which, you know, a lot of organizations don't want to manage at that namespace level. And then you also have the uh, the pieces of uh, resource constraints. So like, then you would have to set up requests and you would have to set up limits on each namespace and say, this can only get this amount of CPU and memory. This namespace can only get this amount of CPU and memory. So mm -hmm. the, the idea of segregation, like when it comes to namespaces, isn't what you would think in terms of like, if you have this in this namespace, the pod over here can't talk over there. Oh no, it definitely can. There's definitely communication from a network perspective between namespaces. Right, right. That's one of the reasons that service mesh ends up getting deployed is to create that segmentation between not even just namespaces, but between, you know, deployments and different pods, you know, pods with this label can't talk to pods with this label. And you can enforce that via service mesh. Whereas with vanilla Kubernetes, it's like, no, everybody talk to everybody. We're all friends, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's even where OPA comes into play. So the open policy agent, you know, if you deploy gatekeeper and gatekeeper is like a the, the intermediary. So Kubernetes knows how to communicate with OPA. Um, but, you know, things like that, you know, where you, you deploy these policies that you can say this namespace can't talk to that namespace. This, this namespace can't deploy anything with the latest container image uh, version, right? Or tag rather. So yeah, there's, there's definitely tools out there that help with that for sure, 100%. But then it just comes down to, you know, the question of, is an organization ready for service mesh? To be frank, a lot aren't. You know, it's 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 because it's a lot that goes into it. Same thing with OPA. You know, you need to have a dedicated, at least a dedicated person 
implementing your policies for you, you know, and then you have to have that person communicating with security and ensuring that you're following proper compliance needs. So uh, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's like, you know, a lot of these tools and these third parties that you can implement in Kubernetes do help with those things. But then it's a matter of, do you have the capacity, aka people to be able to actually work with it? Sure. We're pausing the conversation for a quick word about the future of DPUs and IT infrastructure at the Packet Pushers live stream event on December 13th, 2022. DPUs or data processing units are special purpose hardware that run in servers to accelerate network security and storage functions. DPUs are creating new opportunities and challenges for distributed architectures. You can learn about DPUs and their impact on infrastructure and operations at our live stream event sponsored by Dell Technologies. The live stream features six technical sessions hosted by the Packet Pushers on topics including what network engineers need to know about DPUs, how Dell is integrating DPUs into hyper-converged infrastructure such as VxRail, and how VMware's Project Monterey brings a software environment to DPUs so you can run essential virtualization, storage, security, and networking services. Sign up for this free live event taking place via Zoom at packetpushers.net slash livestream. We'll see you on December 13th, 2022. And one more time, it's packetpushers.net slash livestream. And now back to the podcast. Michael, I want to talk about some design recommendations for people that are building a cluster on-prem. So I want to contrast on-prem with um, with an as-a-service you know, Kubernetes. So let's start with on-prem. Do you have some general cluster design recommendations for us? Yeah, so I would say getting started, you always want to have at least two control planes. You always want to have at least three worker nodes. And from a resource perspective, it's, how can I put it? When you depending on how many workloads you're deploying, because every pod that you deploy, it's going to take CPU and it's going to take memory. So at the end of the day, you don't want to overutilize and you also don't want to underutilize. So from a, how many or how much resources you need, like do you, how much memory do you need? How much CPU do you need? I don't have a recommendation there flat out simply because it's, it's all going to depend on how many workloads you're deploying. If you're, if you're deploying, 10 pods or 100 pods, it's going to be a significant difference in terms of how much resources you should have. Now, that's just from a cluster perspective. Uh, did you also want to, did you also want me to answer from like an automation perspective of like how to actually get these clusters up and running? Well, let's stick with the physical for a minute, because I actually have a follow-up question to that since you were talking about uh, basically hardware resources. Would I deploy my Kubernetes nodes, I guess, um, as VMs or bare metal? I would say right now, VMs, I think that there would need to be a like incredibly compelling reason to deploy uh, five physical servers, two control planes, uh, three worker nodes. To be honest, I don't even have like, I'm trying to think in my head if I have a scenario where that would be needed. I Unless well, you I, had some, yeah, sorry, God. Well, I mean, you know how a hypervisor is going to, can share resources and so on and, you know, and right. so on. So you could, if you were, if it was a severe resource hog, whatever the workloads are that you're deploying, I could see bare metal being more attractive maybe, but, but operationally, I mean, yeah, I want it to be VMs all day long. Right. Yeah. So I would say uh, my 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 counter argument <laughs> to that would be if you have resources that are consuming that amount of like memory, CPU or just resource in general, you got a problem in your code and you should go fix it. <laughs> 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 yeah, you, you definitely shouldn't have that type of problem. I, 
you know what? I, I think thinking about it, the only scenario that I would see that is like, for example, if you have, you know, if you're, if you want to run etcd, maybe, which is like the, the database for Kubernetes on a separate server for some type of regulatory or compliance needs, maybe to, to protect that data or to put that data in another area outside of the servers that are running um, the other pieces like the API server and the scheduler and stuff, and then the pods. But that's, it, it would have to be like a real specific need for that for whatever reason. And I can't even think of the compliance like items or, or, or regulatory names that would be needed for something like that. Like I'm just, I'm throwing a guess out there for something like that. But yeah, I mean, I would say 99.9999% of the time, if you want to segregate, like let's say etcd or your control plane, uh, other control plane components or whatever, you could. You would just run them on different VMs. Mm. Yeah, I could see an argument me being made for bare metal in terms of efficiency, right? Mm. If I don't want to pay the VM tax, uh, the overhead of having the hypervisor, or if I'm concerned about noisy neighbors, it, usually VMs are pretty constrained around what uh how much one virtual machine can impact another on a hypervisor but if you're really concerned about that i can see the bare metal provisioning portion of it but then again that assumes that you have a really good robust provisioning process for your bare metal machines and that you're able to automate a lot of the actions that are required for building and maintaining them and eh, definitely not everybody does have that <laughs> Yeah. And then even actually, you know, as you were just saying that another, another piece came up in my head, there even could be some type of compliance need that, for example, uh, from a, from a government perspective, maybe you might have servers that aren't reaching out to the internet hundred percent of the time. So they aren't going out and pulling updates. You're, you're setting up specific times where, Hey, at between 1am and 2am, we're turning on egress and ingress so we can update the container images from wherever our registry is. So maybe from that perspective, you might want to have X amount of worker nodes or something running on servers that are not connected to outbound from an ingress and egress perspective to actually get out to the internet. Maybe something like that. I, I have heard that. Um, it's something that's usually called like at the edge, right? So if anybody's heard of edge computing, I see that a lot where it's like, you know, you have certain Kubernetes clusters that aren't reaching out to the internet and that aren't pulling down updates only. It's only happening in specific times and specific intervals. So maybe something like that you might want to run on a separate server or whatever the case may be. But then I, I guess the argument there is like, well, just set up maybe different uh, VLANs or, or whatever the case may be to, to segregate that traffic. But now the actual nodes that make up or the servers that make up my cluster should they all have identical hardware or is it okay to mix and match or can i have uh, some nodes in my cluster have specialized hardware or something like that yeah so let's say for example you have an application that's running in kubernetes that's like very graphical intense right like maybe you might want to have servers that have specific graphics cards um, or maybe if you have applications that are very like memory heavy, like maybe you're containerizing Java applications that are very memory heavy, you would have separate worker nodes that you would put those pods on to utilize a bunch of memory. So for example, let's say you had five worker nodes. Two of them were for uh, pods that were running or containerized applications that are running that are very GPU or, or graphic centric. 
And then the other three are, are maybe for memory centric for those applications that need more memory. So yeah, absolutely. You can absolutely mix and match like that. And even in the cloud, you'll, you'll start to see that. Um, I, I forget if it was DigitalOcean or Linode, maybe both. But if you, when you're setting up your worker nodes, you have options there that like for high memory, high CPU graphics, et cetera. Yeah. And then Kubernetes as a scheduler will know enough to know which node it should put a particular container on. You would set that up with something like labels. Okay. So like you would, you would tell the pods what nodes that they should be running on. Uh, you would set up those constraints. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about automate the automation component then uh, for if I want to automate the building of a Kubernetes cluster, do you have, well, I mean, the manual process feels like you, you build a Linux box, you throw Kubernetes on it, and then you add it to the cluster kind of a thing. I mean, but, but then you mentioned earlier in the show, like KubeADM, you know, as a way to, to automate some of this. So which is better automation, I'm assuming is going to be better, right? Yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing, like, you know, if you... In today's world, nobody's just going to bootstrap a Kubernetes cluster just like manually, you know, setting up the certificate authorities, setting up the scheduler specifically, etcd specifically. They're going to meet somewhere in the middle with which is like a little bit of automation, but also a little bit of like a raw deployment. That would be kubeadm. So you would use kubeadm to bootstrap the actual process of getting Kubernetes up and running. Now, in terms of the automation piece of like building the infrastructure, it's going to be the same thing as, you know, any other server environment, you know, maybe you're using Terraform, maybe you're using Ansible. Um, with Kubernetes specifically, there is to to not go too deep, and I mean I can, of course, but um it's declarative, like the API is declarative. So you have certain tools like cluster API, for example, that is like Terraform. It it performs CRUD operations, but it does it in a declarative fashion. So it's more like native to Kubernetes. So there's, there's, there's different tools and stuff like that, that you can use. Um, you know, there's also different clients that you can use. So like, for example, you can use maybe Pulumi, for example, to deploy a Kubernetes cluster. So. Okay. Very good. So let's move from the on-premises approach to I'm using a service, some kind of a, a cloud service to build my Kubernetes cluster design recommendations there. You made it sound earlier, like it was just hit the easy button. <laughs> I would say that it's definitely feels like hit the easy button in, in most cases, because number one, so again, like thinking about Kubernetes from, from a, a high level perspective, you have the control plane and you have the worker nodes. So half of that, when you run in the cloud is taken away from you and you don't have to do anything. So the control plane is completely abstracted away from you. Now, there are certain things that you still want to do with the control plane. For example, you still want to pull audit logs, which you can do. You still want to maybe set up the metrics endpoint so you can consume uh, your observability metrics with like Prometheus or something like that. But the actual management of your control plane is completely abstracted away from you. So you only have to worry about your worker nodes. Now, from a scalability perspective, you literally just click the button that says auto scale for me, max is 10, minimum is two, figure it out as I deploy pods. <laughs> um, so, but then there's also the pieces of like, you know, those, those worker nodes still need updates, you know? So if you're running Ubuntu boxes, you still got to update them. You still got to make sure that they're secure. You still got to do all that stuff. At some point, you're going to have to update the Kubernetes API. You, you got to do that yourself, but hmm. it's, arguably way easier than doing it, you know, on-prem, for example. 
Oh, that's interesting. I would have guessed that the provider was managing some of those things for me. Like I, I patch Ubuntu boxes a lot. It's super annoying. I would think Kubernetes <laughs> as a service would be handling that for me, but not so, eh? Yeah. yeah. And then, but there's also, there's, there's also a way to move away from that if you want to. Um, there is, I like to call it serverless Kubernetes in a sense. Um, so for example, in AWS, there's something called Fargate Profiles. And what Fargate profiles do is instead of having to run EC2 instances for your worker nodes, you don't run EC2 instances anymore. So like there's literally no nodes that you're managing because the Fargate profile like does it in a serverless fashion. So mm -hmm. at that point, you're literally not like mm -hmm. there's no servers anywhere that you're managing. So mm -hmm. it's it's all that it, at that point, it's all abstracted away from you. So yeah, there's there's certain ways to get around it. Um, there's also something called ACI bursting in Azure. So in, in Azure Kubernetes service, you can actually push pods out to Azure Container Instance. Um, there is uh, Azure Container apps that are coming out now that I definitely don't think are ready for production yet, but like there's, you know, there's certain pieces there that you can utilize. So for example, if you want to test an application, you can use Azure Container apps instead of deploying a Kubernetes cluster from a single tenancy perspective. So there's, there's different, there's, in the cloud, there's uh, different ways to get around the, th the same things that you would have to do on-prem. Okay. Uh, as I'm standing up my Kubernetes cluster in the cloud, are there cost concerns or other gotchas that could impact my bill? Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in, I mean, I, I think it's, it's actually funny that we're talking about it because I'm sure we've all seen on social media and stuff, like there's a lot of talk and content going around right now where it's like people are questioning the cloud and what it's what it was giving to us um i i forget which company it was was it Basecamp or i forget but so, somebody recently put out a blog post that it was like we're moving all of our workloads off the cloud it didn't it didn't yeah. give us the benefits that we thought that it was going to give us so like we're seeing that a lot too, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the, I think that's the uncomfortable reality with the cloud is like, you are going to pay a premium. You can figure out what that premium is. There's the cost calculators and the billing that you can see in the forecasting and all that, but yes, absolutely. But on the flip side, if you don't, you're going to double or triple your team size to run it on the on prem right and if we look at the average salary for example like around uh new york city for a devops or a platform engineer you're looking at between 160 and 180,000 a year so if you're doubling and tripling your team that you would need to run all the on prem stuff cuz you need a storage person you need a network person you need a server person you need an os person versus pushing that into the cloud you're saving money from that perspective so, but I guess then on the flip side, you still have to hire people that are good with Kubernetes and that are experts or, well, no such thing as experts, but you need to hire people that are good engineers. So it's like, you still kind of find yourself in, in the middle trying to figure that out. But again, I think that would depend on the size of the team almost and the size of the applications that you're deploying. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what we talked about earlier, that that sort of cost benefit analysis you have to do. And, you know, at a certain scale, maybe it does flip from one side to the other, but then you have the whole migration <laughs> concern, which might be a little easier since you're using Kubernetes. And so it should be fairly standard. Uh, speaking of which, we have all these different providers. You've mentioned AWS, you know, they have EKS, you have 
Azure with AKS. And then you have Google, like the OG, the original with GKE. Does it does it matter which provider I pick or are they all kind of basically the same? They're all doing the same thing. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's there's some little differences, you know, like, for example, with uh, with Azure. Right. So, like, let's say I take an Istio service mesh and I have the commands that I need to use or the automation that I need to use to deploy. And I actually tested this a couple of weeks ago. I took the same exact approach, deployed it on EKS. It didn't work. Deployed it on AKS. It worked. Same approach, same uh, version of Istio, all of that. Mm. Point being, the Kubernetes API is the Kubernetes API. It doesn't change. You know, well, it does obviously as it gets updated and stuff like that. But like, it's it is it it's it's static almost. You know, but because it's open source, so once the cloud provider gets a hold of it, they do little tweaks and little things on the back end that we don't know that alters it in a sense, you know, so like, for example, in Azure, right off the bat, the metrics uh, API endpoint and on the control plane is exposed. In EKS, it's not. So you need to deploy it and, 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 you know, get that pod up and running yourself. So they are doing little tweaks on the back end that you kind of don't see unless you're like really in it. With that being said, I don't know. It's all the same stuff. <laughs> it's it, Kubernetes is Kubernetes. It's doing a job. Maybe you'll have to, like I said, you know, deploy the metrics endpoint in EKS, but you don't have to in AKS. Little things like that. Um, I think another big thing is like I often notice that the Kubernetes API versions that are available in, for example, EKS are always behind compared to AKS. AKS always has newer ones compared to EKS. So little things like that, you'll have to figure out if it actually matters to you. But overall, you know, from a general high level perspective, it's all doing the same stuff. It's scheduling your pods and pushing them out. Gotcha. And, and the costs are like pretty, they're, they're, they're pennies from a, from a difference perspective. Yeah. Right. Well, for the infrastructure people out there, we think in terms of, uh, of storage and networking and security and, and these kind of things. So I want to talk first about storage. What is my Kubernetes cluster actually storing for me? Sure. So there's going to be two parts to this. There is the actual data of Kubernetes. So for example, let's say you deploy a pod, right? And it has a higher level controller. Uh, Kubernetes is made up of different controllers for your ingress, for your pods, for your uh, volumes, for everything. It's, a, it's all an API. That controller, its job. So for example, you have the deployment controller. Its job is to look at pods and say, is my current state my desired state? Right? Mm -hmm. Declarative. But how does it know the data? Right. how the pod looks, the CPU that's running, et cetera, that's being stored in etcd. So etcd is your database. It's storing the state of your Kubernetes cluster, how it looks. So that's one piece of the storage. The second piece of the storage is, for example, let's say you have a pod that needs a hard drive in Kubernetes. It's called a volume. Well, from that perspective, you would then spin up a volume. Now that volume could be uh, ephemeral or not. If it's ephemeral, no big deal. If you need to store that data somewhere, then you use something called a CSI or a container storage interface. There are multiple container storage interfaces. 
AWS has it, Azure has it. You, I could literally go to Micro Center down the street and get a Synology NAS for $200 hmm. and connect my Kubernetes volumes to that Synology NAS. Uh, a lot of the SAN providers now have it. A lot of just the, the overall storage providers all have CSIs. So that that's those are the two pieces of your storage at a high level, of course. And, and what about things like app state and, and, and databases and, and all of that? Is that going to be in that that second tier there? Like you were describing a, you know, a, a Synology box that I could just be running uh, iSCSI to or something. Right. So that would be the difference between stateless applications and stateful applications. So you can run stateful applications on Kubernetes. You can also run stateless from a database perspective. I don't know if this debate is still going on. I haven't seen it in a long time, but there was a heavy debate for a long time of whether or not you can run databases on Kubernetes. I think the reality is, yes, you absolutely can, because if we think about it, what is a database? It stores data. So you have two options. You can either run like a MySQL pod, for example, on Kubernetes, scale it out, have it look at volumes that are sitting elsewhere on a Synology NAS. You probably don't want it done in production, but just an example. Or you can have pods pointing to different uh, uh, um, database backends. So for mm -hmm. example, I can have uh, MySQL running or whatever the case may be pointing to RDS in AWS. So like I can have it pointing to database backends mm -hmm. in, in some service in the cloud or something somewhere. So yeah, though there's there's definitely several options from from that perspective. But then you have your your stateless and your stateful applications where um, even if you have a stateless application, you could still have volumes attached to it. So like from a storage perspective, those are still there because stateless is like, you know, for example, when you go to google.com and you open up, you go to www.google.com, a new, new page pops up and you type in your search and then you close it out. And then if you reopen and you go to www.google.com, it's fresh again, right? That's a stateless application. It doesn't store your data. Gmail is stateful. It stores everything. Yeah. So you can have both style of applications in Kubernetes as well, but those don't really have anything to do with your backend storage. You okay. can have backend storage for both stateful and stateless. Then where do the containers themselves live? I assume that's in some kind of a repo that is not in the cluster. So the, uh, like in terms of the containers that are running, you mean? The containers that are running, right. I say, hey, Kubernetes, I want you to spin up this container in this pod. Yeah. So containers live inside of pods and you can have one container per pod, or you mm -hmm. can have multiple containers per pod, which yep. is called typically called sidecar containers. Yeah. And, and physically those containers are drawn from where? From oh, a okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. 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 So those containers are going to be running based off of a container image. And your container image is going to be running in some type of registry. So for example, you can store them in like JFrog uh, Artifactory. You can store them in Docker Hub. You can store, store yeah. them in ECR, ACR, uh, which is like the, the Azure and AWS equivalent for your container images. Yeah. And then you would pull them from there. And then inside of your Kubernetes manifest, there's a spec. And then under your spec, it says containers. And then right there is where you specify the container image, the version, the port, yeah. any volumes that you need, all that fun stuff. And the big point there is those containers do not live within the cluster. You are pulling out of this some right. sort of a, a repo. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Those, those artifacts or container images rather are stored somewhere. Yeah. Right. Now, and then, 
Go ahead, Ned, sorry. If I remember correctly, so the images can be cached on each worker node. So it doesn't have to pull that image every time you want to spin up an identical container from an image. It can cache that image for a certain amount of time. But I think in the spec, you can also tell it don't either don't cache the image or don't use the cache copy, pull a fresh every time, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's something called in your Kubernetes manifest, it's called an image pull policy. And you can set it up as like if it doesn't exist. So I think it's literally called does not exist always or never. Hmm. So for example, the the default is if it doesn't exist, but you can set it up in your container spec to say always. So it's constantly pulling down or never. So like if you say never, for example, and then you try to like, let's say deploy and it doesn't exist locally, your, your deployment's going to fail. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, networking. We don't have time to get into how Kubernetes cluster networking works. That's not what this question is, but for infrastructure people who manage networks, is there something they would be doing to their networking environment to prepare for a Kubernetes cluster coming in? Yeah, so I think the really good thing about networking and Kubernetes is it's the same as everywhere else. Like networking is networking. Uh, it's not, you know, uh, some magic that Kubernetes is doing. There's IP addresses and there are ciders and there are ports and everything else, load balancers, yada, yada. If you want to prepare for networking and Kubernetes, look at something called your CNI or your container network interface. It's how you get your local uh, pod networking running properly. So there's multiple different CNIs that you can use some security based, some, you know, out of the box, press the easy button, and then some in between. And then at that point is where you can set up things like your pod network, which is like your site range. Literally, it's like your subnet. And then you set that up and then you have certain containers that are running on certain ports and, you know, yada, yada. So point being networking isn't any different from a like, what is networking perspective in Kubernetes? It's all the same thing. If you've gone through your CCNA or your Network Plus, you'll be just fine. Okay, so I might need to assign some address blocks. I might need to build a few VLANs, uh, these kind of things. Nothing unusual, though. There's nothing really overly strange going on there. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, the, the biggest thing, I think, from a networking perspective is understanding that pod-to-pod communication is open. It's not encrypted. So if you have a need to do that, that's when something like a service mesh would come into play. That's the only like odd gotcha when it comes uh, to networking in Kubernetes is it's 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 an open house. Everybody can talk to everybody. Mm. <laughs> I suppose you could get in, lean into a switch that could do MacSec or something and do like a layer two encryption in in that way that might cover some of those bases. Yeah, and that's where like something like a service mesh would come into play, or there yeah, are certain yeah. CNIs that, um, like, I believe Calico has WireGuard, and you can yeah. set up pod-to-pod communication that's encrypted. Yeah. Okay. So and then you have just... like load balancers and services, and it, you know, every everything in the OSI model. You you got the whole stack. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so now that we've touched on uh, a little bit of security, I, I have we don't have time to get into the whole Kubernetes security model either. But I, but one kind of building a cluster related question: once a cluster is initially stood up, is there a default security posture? Kind of some default I don't know usernames, namespaces, um, other posture related things that we should be changing right away. Yes, the answer is yes to all. Um, Kubernetes out of the box is arguably one of the most unsecure platforms 
out there. Um, yes, you need to. So it's funny, like a lot of the work that I have coming down the pipe right now is all Kubernetes security centric. And the reason why is because people are just trying to figure out Kubernetes. And once they get it up and running, they wipe the sweat off their forehead and they they go home. Uh, and little do they realize that the entire thing is unsecure from who can access the cluster to how the pods are running to how traffic inbound and outbound are is working. Now, this is a literally, we could talk about this for, I'm not even exaggerating, five hours. Like the course that I just did on Kubernetes security is five hours long. But to, to try to not go five hours, these are the three things that you should think about. RBAC, so your role-based access control. Who can do what? from an authentication and authorization perspective, extremely important. The second thing is network policies. So your ingress, your egress, what pods can talk to what pods, what pods can communicate outbound, inbound, et cetera, and policy management. So your OPA's out there and your Caverno, K-Y-V-E-R-N-O, I don't know how to pronounce it, and you know your policy managers and stuff in general. So those are the three things that you should heavily think about when it comes to Kubernetes security. Okay. That was a lot. And it feels like we really did just see the tip of the iceberg there when it comes to that conversation. So I didn't know it was, that, that is not actually what I expected you to say. I thought it was going to be, ah, <laughs> oh, you need to tweak a little bit here and a little bit there. And it's not, oh yeah, it's default to open and everybody can talk to everybody. Woo. It's a party. Yeah. It's, it's uh, open house. Okay. Oh, good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Oh, Michael, great conversation. We're going to do a part two here. Um, but for those that are leaving us today, where can they find out more about you? Yeah, so pretty heavily on LinkedIn. So if you just go to Michael Levan, L-E-V-A-N, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter is at the NJ DevOps guy and GitHub. So admin turn DevOps, you can find that handle there. And I do a lot of my open blogging on Dev2. So Dev2 slash the NJ DevOps guy. Great stuff. Thank you very much. Uh, for joining us on day two cloud today. And, and again, if you're listening, we're going to have part two of this discussion in next week's episode. We're going to move from building Kubernetes clusters, which was the focus of today's conversation to managing them. So we built the thing. Now we're going to live with the thing in part two and virtual high fives to you for tuning in. You are clearly an awesome human with impeccable taste in podcasts. And as a reminder, if you've been looking for more podcasts for your earbuds, remember that Mike hosts the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast, which is also part of the Packet Pushers podcast network. You can find Kubernetes Unpacked wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. Just search for it and it'll pop right up. If you have suggestions for future Day 2 Cloud episodes, Ned and I would love to hear them. You can hit us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show or go to day2cloud.io and fill out the request form. One other bit of housekeeping for you, Packet Pushers has a weekly newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine. Him is loaded with the very best stuff we found on the internet, plus our own feature articles and commentary. It is free. It doesn't suck, we promise. And you can get the next issue via packetpushers.net slash newsletter. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 